Welcome to our spooky tales. We have a quite a few to tell. Now first we hear from me and you is a creepy tale from Spooky Boo. Welcome to Scary Storytime by Spooky Boo. www.scarystorytime.com Clowns. I'm afraid of the word. I never want to hear the word again. On Halloween, I don't even come out of the house in fear of seeing him, the clown, or any clown for that matter. I will start by telling you that I used to love the circus growing up. I went to every circus and parade when I was a kid. You could always find me celebrating and laughing with my friends. We couldn't help but notice there was one clown who would always be at every parade. He would do tricks like walking on stilts or juggling. We knew it was always the same clown because he had these evil deep blood red eyes and weird teeth. He wasn't like the others. They were goofy and old and fun. He was always young, maybe in his 20s, I don't know. He could do anything and do it better than all of the rest. And he always smiled at us, picking us out in the crowd, winking at my friends and I. As I grew older, I stopped going to the circus because I started to love football and other sports. Then I went to college, got a job, you know the rest. I just grew out of it. Then one day my company took us all to the circus for a company team building event. I hadn't been to the circus in ages and had forgotten all about that evil clown. It was the last thing on my mind when I walked into the big tent. But there he was. The clown show was first. All of the clowns doing their silly acts for the patrons. While they ignored him. They always ignored him. He was juggling knives of all things, big machetes. As one clown walked by him, one of the machetes came down on the other clown's arm and sliced it off. The clown screamed as it dropped to the ground and he grabbed the shoulder socket from where it was torn. Blood spewed between his fingertips. The hurt clown ran, screaming from the tent as his arm twitched on the ground. No one else flinched. No one noticed. Was it an illusion? As I stood and stared, the evil clown looked up in my direction and then winked at me. He read my screaming mind. It was impossible. His smile turned into a razor-sharp grin with teeth as jagged as hunting knives, just like when I was young. No one else noticed. They all laughed at the clowns and how they tripped and entertained. No one saw the evil one staring at me. A bit queasy. I sat down and pondered on this thought. How? How in the hell was this guy still young? He was already twenty years my senior when I was ten. It had to be the makeup. But there he was, doing the same flips and jumps that he did years ago, still picking me out in the crowd with those evil eyes. My stomach churned like I was going to hurl. On weak legs, I stood and made my way through the laughing crowd, hoping to make it to the exit before I passed out. As the fresh air filled my lungs when I exited, I felt a little better, at least enough to get curious. 
I looked around and saw him, only him, making his way to a smaller tent. Sadly, curiosity got the best of me, and I followed. When he reached his tent, he opened the flap and turned to look at me. With one hand, he motioned for me to come inside. I could have said anything but yes, but I didn't. My mind raced with fear and anticipation as I stepped into the tent. It looked way bigger inside than it did outside. There were rooms and strange moaning noises coming from the rooms. It had to be an illusion of some sort. Come, sit. Would you like some tea? He pulled out a chair from the table. Reluctantly, I nodded. I assumed the caffeine would clear my head a little, so I didn't say no. He came back a few minutes later with some mint-flavored tea and told his story. I am old, older than you know. Everything here is an illusion, and no one but you and your friends can see me. You created me out of your feeble little mind. How can I still be sitting here and drinking this tea if I created you? Only you can answer that. He laughed. Then where am I right now? I started to grow really tired, and my eyelids began to shut. You're right here with me. He smirked and continued. No one can see you. You're like a figment of their imagination right now. I felt my chin drop to my chest, and then as I came to, everything was bigger. The smell of mint tea flooded my senses as I realized I was in the teacup I was drinking before. Heavy footsteps plodded the ground around me, and the chair I was in squeaked beside me. That hideous razor-sharp grin now blocked my view. Of the tapered tent's top, I think I screamed. I'm not sure. He raised a cup to his lips as the liquid started to pour into his mouth. I went with it. My fingers slipped as I tried to grab onto the side of the cup. My ass hit his pursed lips, and I tried to grab those too, but they were too supple and soft. I grabbed at his teeth. But only screamed as one of my fingers bounced across my view, and his jagged tooth cut it, and sliced it off. I wrapped my arms around the tip of his tongue, watching the liquid fall down the dark tube of death as he swallowed the tea. Hmm. The sound of his voice was loud inside his mouth. He shook his tongue back and forth until I lost my grasp on the slimy muscle and fell onto the soft pads of his saliva glands. There was so much spit in his mouth, and even more as my limbs flailed and activated the glands. The tip of his tongue pushed underneath me and prodded me to the top of his thick muscle. The bastard was toying with me, pushing me up against the roof of his mouth and making me bounce up and down on his tongue like a trampoline. Please let me go! I screamed. I'll do anything, anything. What do you want? His laugh echoed in my ears as he began to tilt his head backward and swallow. I made one last attempt to grab at his disgusting uvula and wrapped my body around it. He didn't gag or choke like I expected. He just shook his head violently until I slid down the slippery thing and into his throat. I could feel the muscles of his esophagus working around me, pushing me down into the pit of hell, where I knew I would be mashed up by stomach muscles while being eaten away 
by stomach acid. I cried as my body bounced into the humid, smelly pit of his gut. It was dark and hot. I stood, and a little bit of the tea he swallowed swarmed around my ankles. I pounded on his stomach wall, screaming to let me out as a large, smelly gas bubble swept by me and exited through the top. I heard him burp, and then felt warmth squirting out at my clothes as they seemed to melt off of my body. Then it stopped. It was silent. My skin was burned with the stomach acid where the clothes didn't protect me. The heat of the pit made me sleepy despite the pain in my skin. I sunk down in defeat into the hot tea and acid mix, feeling my skin begin to burn and drift away. I suddenly awoke in my bed, sweating and screaming with my cell phone blaring in my ear. My maniacal laugh was probably heard throughout the apartment building. <laughs> it was all a dream. I grabbed the phone and stared at the unknown number. Before answering, I looked down at my legs. They were red, burn marks in my skin and my ankles, and I was wearing pajamas I didn't even recognize. To my horror, my index finger was cut up and wrapped in bandages. I slowly pressed the button to answer the call. Hello? Hello, Stephen. The clown's cheery voice danced into my head. Let's do it again sometime. Our second tale from someone we hate is from that man called Spooky Nate. He is on the Cesportation Conflagration, and he tells about when Cain rolls up with a noisy station. Thank you, everyone, and continue listening to our spooky tales. Good evening. This is Nate Bradford, the co-host of Wednesday night's Sesploitation Conflagration. Uh, today I'm reading the story Cain Rose Up by Stephen King. I spent my formative years in Bangor and often encountered Mr. King. Uh, he's a very nice gentleman and obviously a prolific author. I chose this story because I feel like not only is it a good uh, creepy tale, but it's also very prescient when we think about some of the things that are going on in our world nowadays. Uh, I'm not going to say that Stephen King was a psychic, but he definitely was ahead of the curve Created on several free version for use. issues that currently plague our society. So, Cain Rose Up by Stephen King. Garish walked out of the bright May sunshine and into the coolness of the dorm. It took his eyes a moment to adjust, and at first, Harry the Beaver was just a bodiless voice from the shadows. It was a bitch, wasn't it? The Beaver asked. Wasn't that one a really, truly bitch? Yes, Garish said. It was tough. Now his eyes pulled in the beaver. He was rubbing a hand across the pimples on his forehead and sweating under his eyes. He was wearing sandals and a 69 t-shirt with a button on the front that said Howdy Doody was a pervert. 
The beaver's huge buck teeth loomed in the gloom. I was going to drop it in January, the beaver said. I kept telling myself to do it while there was still time, and then ad drop was over and it was Created either go for it for or pick up an use. incomplete. I think I flunked it. <clears throat> I think I flunked it, Kurt. Honest to God. The house mother stood in the corner by the mailboxes. She was an extremely tall woman who looked vaguely like Rudolph Valentino. She was trying to push a slip strap back under the sweaty armhole of her dress with one hand while she tacked up a dorm sign-out sheet with the other. Tough, Garrish repeated. I wanted to bag a few off you, but I didn't dare. Honest to God, that guy's got eyes like an eagle. You think you got your A all right? I guess maybe I flunked, Garrish said. The beaver gaped. You think you flunked? You think you? I'm going to take a shower, okay? Yeah, sure, Kurt. Sure. Was that your last test? Yes, Garrish said. That was my last test. Garrish crossed the lobby and pulled through the doors and began to climb. The stairwell smelled like an athletic Created supporter. Free Same for old stairs. Use. His room was on the fifth floor. Quinn and that other idiot from three, the one with the hairy legs, piled on him, tossing a softball back and forth. A little fellow wearing horn-rimmed glasses and a valiantly struggling goatee passed him between four and five, holding a calculus book to his chest like a Bible, his lips moving in a rosary of logarithms. His eyes were blank as blackboards. Garish paused and looked after him, wondering if he wouldn't be better off dead. But the little fellow was now only a bobbing, disappearing shadow on the wall. It bobbed once more and then was gone. Garish climbed to five and walked down the hall to his room. Pigpen had left two days ago. Four finals in three days. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Pigpen knew how to arrange things. <clears throat> He'd only left his pinups, two dirty mismatched sweat socks, and a ceramic parody of Rodan's thinker perched on a toilet seat. Garish put his key in the lock and turned Created it. With Kurt, version hey, for commercial use. Rollins, the asinine floor counselor who had sent Jimmy Brody up to visit the dean of men for a drinking offense, was coming down the hall and waving at him. He was tall, well-built, crew-cut, symmetrical. His look was varnished. You all done? Rollins asked. Yeah. Don't forget to sweep the floor of the room and fill out the damage report, okay? Yeah. I slid a damage report under your door last Thursday, didn't I? Yeah. If I'm not in my room, just slide the damage report and the key under the door. Okay. Rollins seized his hand and shook it twice, fast. Pump, pump. Rollins' palm was dry, the skin grainy. Shaking hands with Rollins was like shaking hands with a fistful of salt. Have yourself a good summer, my man. Right. Don't work too hard. No. Use it, but don't abuse it. I will, and I won't. Rollins looked momentarily puzzled, and then he laughed. Take care now, he slapped Garish's shoulder, and then walked down the hall, Created pausing once to tell Ron Crane to turn down his stereo. Garish could see Rollins lying dead in a ditch with maggots in his eyes. Rollins wouldn't care, neither would the maggots. You either ate the world, or the world ate you, and it was okay either way. Garish stood thoughtfully, watching until Rollins was out of sight, and let, him, let himself into his room. With Pigpen's cyclonic clutter gone, it looked barren and sterile. The swirled, heaped, drifted pile that had been Pigpen's bed was stripped down to bare, if slightly cum-stained, mattress pad. 
Two Playboy gatefolds looked at him with frozen two-dimensional come-ons. Not much change in Garish's half of the room, which had always been barracks neat. You could drop a quarter on the top blanket of Garish's bed and it would bounce. All that neat had gotten on Piggy's nerves. He was an English major with a fine turn of phrase. He called Garish a pigeon holder. The only thing in the wall above Garish's bed was a huge blow-up of Humphrey Created Bogart with free that he had gotten for in the college bookstore. Bogey had an automatic pistol in each hand and was wearing suspenders. Pigpen said pistols and braces were impotency symbols. Garish doubted if Bogey had been impotent, although he had never read anything about him. He went to the closet door, unlocked it, and brought out the big walnut-stocked three fifty-seven Magnum that his father, a miss... <laughs> All right, let's try that one again. <clears throat> a three fifty-two Magnum that his father, a Methodist minister, had bought for him for Christmas. He had bought the telescopic sight himself last March. You weren't supposed to have guns in your room, not even hunting rifles, but it hadn't been hard. He had signed it out of the university gun storage room the day before with a forged withdrawal slip. He put it in a waterproof leather scabbard and left it in the woods behind the football field. Then, this morning, around 3 a.m., he just went out, got it, and brought it upstairs through the sleeping corridors. Created he sat on the bed with the gun across his use. knees and wept a little bit. The thinker on the toilet seat was looking at him. Garish put the gun on his bed, crossed the room, and slapped it off Piggy's table and onto the floor where it shattered. There was a knock at the door. Garish put the rifle under his bed. Come in. It was Bailey, standing there in his skivvies. There was a puff of lint in his belly button. There was no future for Bailey. Bailey would marry a stupid girl, and they would have stupid kids. Later on, he would die of cancer, or maybe renal failure. How was the chem final, Kurt? All right. I just wondered if I could borrow your notes. I've got it tomorrow. I burned them with my trash this morning. Oh, hey, Jesus, did Piggy go and do that? He pointed at the remains of the thinker. I guess so. Why do you want to go and do that? I like that thing. I was going to buy it off him. Bailey had sharp, ratty little features. His skivvies were thready and saggy-seated. Garish could see exactly how he would look dying of emphysema or something in an oxygen Created tank. with free version for now commercial use. yellow. I could, <laughs> I could help you, Garish thought. You think you'd mind if I scoffed up these pinups? I guess not. Okay. Bailey crossed the room, stepping his bare feet gingerly over the pottery shards and untacked the playmates. That picture of Bogart is really sharp, too. No tits, but hey, you know? Bailey peered at Garish to see if Garish would smile. When Garish did not, he said, I don't suppose you planned on throwing it away or anything. No, I was just getting ready to take a shower. Okay, have a good summer if I don't see you again, Kurt. Thanks. Bailey went back to the door, the seat of his skivvies flapping. He paused at the door. Another four-point semester, Kurt? At least. Good deal. See you next year. He went out and closed the door. Garish sat on the bed for a little while, then took the gun out, stripped it, and cleaned it. He put the muzzle up to his eye and looked at the tiny circle of light at the far end. The barrel was clean. Created he reintegrated with free version the gun. For use. In the third drawer of his bureau were three heavy boxes of Winchester ammunition. He laid these on the windowsill. He locked the room's door and went back to the window. He pulled the blinds up. The mall was bright and green, peppered with strolling students. Quinn and his idiot friend had gotten up a ragtag softball game. They scurried back and forth like crippled ants escaping a broken burrow. 
Let me tell you something, Garrish told Bogey. God got mad at Cain because Cain had an idea that God was a vegetarian. His brother knew better. God made the world in his image, and if you don't eat the world, the world eats you. So Cain says to his brother, Why didn't you tell me? And his brother says, Why didn't you listen? And Cain says, Okay, I'm listening now. So he waxes his brother and says, Hey God, you want meat? Here it is. You want roast or ribs or Abel burgers or what? And God told him to put on his boogie shoes, so Created what do you with think? free version for non-commercial use. No reply from Bogey. Garrish put the window up and rested his elbows on the ledge, not letting the barrel of the three fifty two project out into the sunlight. He looked into the sight. He was centered on Carlton Memorial Women's Dormitory across the mall. Carlton was more popularly known as the Dog Kennels. He put the crosshairs on a big Ford wagon. A blonde co-ed in jeans and blue shell top was talking to her mother while her father, red-faced and balding, loaded suitcases into the back. Someone knocked on the door. Garrish waited. The knock came again. Kurt, I'll give you half a rock for that Bogart poster. Bailey. Garrish said nothing. The girl and his mother were laughing at something, not knowing they were microbe, not knowing that there were microbes in their intestines, feeding, dividing, multiplying. The girl's father joined them, and they stood in the sunlight together, a family portrait in the crosshairs. Damn it all, Bailey said. His feet padded down the hall. Created the free version for non-commercial use. The gun kicked hard against his shoulder, the good padded kick you get when you have seated the gun in exactly the right place. The smiling girl's blonde head sheared itself away. Her mother went on smiling for a moment, and then her hand went to her mouth. She screamed through her hand. Garish shot right through it. Hand and head disappeared in a red spray. The man who had been loading the suitcases broke into a lumbering run. Garish tracked him and shot him in the back. He raised his head, looking out of the sight for a moment. Quinn was holding the softball and looking at the blonde girl's brains, which were splattered on the no-parking sign behind her prone body. Quinn didn't move. All across the mall, people stood frozen like children engaged in a game of statues. Someone, somebody pounded on the door, then rattled the handle. Bailey again. Kurt, you all right, Kurt? I think somebody's... Good drink, good meat, good God, let's eat, Garrish extreme, and then shot at Quinn. He pulled instead of squeezing, and the shot went wide. Created Quinn was free running, no problem. The second use. shot took Quinn in the neck, and he flew maybe 20 feet. Kurt Garrish is killing himself, Bailey was screaming. Rollins, Rollins, come quick! His footsteps faded down the hall. Now they were starting to run. Garrish could hear them screaming. Garrish could hear the faint smack-smack sound of their shoes on the walks. He looked up at Bogey. Bogey held his two guns and looked beyond him. He looked at the shattered remains of Piggy's thinker and wondered what Piggy was doing today, if he was sleeping or watching TV or eating some great, big, wonderful meal. Eat the world, Piggy, Garrish thought. You gulped that sucker right down. Garrish! It was Rollins now, pounding on the door. Open up, Garrish! It's locked, Bailey panted. He looked lousy. He killed himself. I know it. Garrish pushed the muzzle out the window again. A boy in a madras shirt was crouched down behind a bush, scanning the dormitory windows with desperate intensity. He wanted to run for it, Garrish saw, but his legs were frozen. Good God, let's eat, Garrish murmured and began to pull the trigger Created with free again. version for non-commercial use. So, there you go. That's, uh... Kane Rose Up by Stephen King. Uh, I flubbed it up a few times there, but I hope you still enjoy my recording. And uh, 
I'll see you next week on the Sesploitation Conflagration on our Blog Talk Radio website, Wednesday nights. What he didn't finish but he meant to say is Wednesday nights on KSDAD Radio, the conflagration and conflagration. But now the wind grows cold and the chill draws near. What in the world could be here? Oh, do not fear and do not flack, because here he is, the one we love, called Drac. And he's here for us to tell us a tale. And it's a good one for you and me. Because listen here as Drac tells us about the cremation of Sam McGee. The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert W. Service There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way, he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail, Talk of your cold through the parka's fold was stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we laid packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and cap says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, it's the cursed cold and it's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. It ain't being dead. It's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on with the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee, and before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried, horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, you may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, 
though my lips were dumb and my heart Created how I with cursed free that for non-commercial use. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies, round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows, oh, God, how I loathe the thing! And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was running low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. And I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen Created chum. Created free version for non-commercial use. Then, here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out, Created with free and they for danced about use. ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile. And he said, Please close the door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood Created run with free cold. Version for non-commercial use. The northern lights have seen queer sights but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. The last story tonight, and our last tale to tell, comes from yours truly. And I hope you think it's well. Let's go to the Arctic, and then we'll trace. The last steps of a man called Lost Face. Lost Face by Jack London. Enjoy the last tale. We'll be back afterward for one final scream. <laughs>
Lost Face by Jack London. It was the end. Sub and Cow had traveled a long trail of bitterness and horror, homing like a dove for the capitals of Europe. And here, farther away than ever in Russian America, the trail ceased. He sat in the snow, arms tied behind him, waiting to torture. He stared curiously before him at a huge Cossack, prone in the snow, moaning in pain. The men had finished handling the giant and turned him over to the women. That they exceeded the fiendishness of the men, the man's cries attested. Subankal looked on in shudder. He was not afraid to die. He carried his life too long in his hands on that weary trail from Warsaw to Nulato. He shuddered at the mirror, dying. But he objected to the torture. It offended his soul. And this offense, in turn, was not due to the mere pain he must endure, but to the sorry spectacle the pain would make of him. He knew that he would pray and beg and entreat, even as big Ivan and the others that had gone before. This would not be nice. To pass out bravely and keen, cleanly with a smile and a jest. Ah, that would have been the way. But to lose control, have his soul obsessed, upset, excuse me, by the pangs of the flesh, to screech and gibber like an ape, to become the various beasts. Ah, that is what was so terrible. There had been no chance to escape. From the beginning where he dreamed the fiery dream of Roland's independ Poland's independence, he had become a puppet in the hands of fate. From the beginning at Warsaw at St. Petersburg to the Siberian mines in Kamchatka, on the crazy boats of the fur thieves, fate had been driving him to this end. Without doubt in the foundations of the world was graved this end for him. For him, who was so fine and sensitive, whose nerves scarcely sheltered under his skin, who was a dreamer and a poet and the artist. Before that, he was dreamed of. It had been determined that the quivering bundle of sensitiveness that constituted him should be doomed to die wry in howling savagery and to die in this far land of night in this dark place beyond the last boundaries of the world. He sighed. So that thing before him was Big Ivan. Big Ivan the giant. The man without nerves. The man of iron. The Cossack turned freebooter of the seas. Who was phlegmatic as an ox and a nervous system so low that what was pain to an ordinary man was scarcely a tickle to him. Well, trust these Nulato Indians to find Big Ivan's nerves and trace them to the roots of his quivering soul. They were certainly doing it. It was inconceivable that a man could suffer so much and yet live. Big Ivan was paying for his low order of nerves. Already he had lasted twice as long as any of the others. Subinkow felt that he could not stand the Cossack suffering much longer. Why didn't Ivan die, he thought. He would go mad if the screaming did not cease. But when it ceased, his turn would come. And there was Yakaga, 
waiting him too, grinning at him even now in anticipation. Yakaga, whom only last week he kicked out of the fort and upon whose face he laid to lash the dog whip. Yakaga would attend to him. Doubtlessly, Yakaga was saving him for even more refined tortures, more exquisite nerve-wracking. Ah, that must have been a good one from the way Ivan screamed. The squalls bending over him stepped back with laughter and the clapping of hands. Subin Cal saw the monstrous thing that had been perpetrated and began to laugh hysterically. Look, the Indians looked at him in wonderment that he should laugh. But Subankal could not stop. This would never do. He controlled himself, the spasmodic twitches slowly dying away. He stopped to think of other things and began reading back into his own life. He remembered his mother and father and the little spotted pony and the French tutor who had taught him dancing and sneaked him an old worn copy of Voltaire. Once more he saw Paris and dreary London and gay Vienna and Rome. And once more he saw that wild group of youths who had dreamed, even as he, the dream of an independent Poland with the king of Poland on the throne at Warsaw. Ah, there it was, the long trail began. Well, he had lasted longest, one by one, beginning with the two executed at St. Petersburg. He took up the count of passing of those great spirits. Here one had been beaten to death by the jailer, and there on that blood-stained highway of the exiles where they had marched for endless months, beaten and maltreated by their Cossack guards, another had dropped by the way. Always it had been savagery, brutal, bestial savagery. They had died of fever in the mines, under the knout. The last two had died after the escape in the Battle of the Cossacks, and he alone had won to Kamachka with the stolen papers and the money of a traveler he had left lying in the snow. It had been nothing but savagery. All the years with his heart in studios and theaters and courts, he had been hemmed in by savagery. He had purchased his life with blood. Everybody had killed. He had killed that traveler for his passports. He had proved he was a man of parts by dueling with two Russian officers in a single day. He had to prove himself in order to win a place among the fur thieves. He had to win that place. Behind him lay a thousand years long road across all of Siberia and Russia. He could not escape that way. The only way was ahead, across the dark and icy sea of Bering to Alaska. The way have led from savagery to deepish savagery, on the scurvy rotten ships of the third thieves, out of food and out of water, buffeted by the interminable storms of that stormy sea, men had become animals. Thrice he had sailed east from Kamachka, and thrice after all manner of hardship and suffering, the survivors had come back to Kamachka. There had been no outlet for escape, and he could not go back the way he had come, where the mines in the note waited him. That's not. Again, the fourth and last time he had sailed east, he had been with those who first found the fabled Seal Islands, but he had not returned with them to share the wealth of furs and the mad orgies of Kamachka. 
He had sworn to never go back. He knew to win the state those dear capitals of Europe, he must go on. So he had changed ships and remained in this dark new land. His comrades were Slavolian hunters and Russian inventors, Mongols and Tartars and Siberian Aborigines. And through the savages of the new world, they had cut a path of blood. They had massacred whole village that refused to furnish the fur tribute. And they, in turn, had been massacred by ship's companies. He, with one fin, had been the sole survivor of one such company. They had spent the winter of solitude and starvation on a lonely Aleutian island. And their rescue in the spring by another fur ship had been one chance in a thousand. But always the terrible savagery had hemmed him in. Passing from ship to ship and ever refusing to return, he had come to the ship that explored south. All down the Alaska coast they had encountered nothing but hosts of savages. Every anchorage among the beating islands, beetling islands, or under the frowning cliffs of the mainland had meant a battle or a storm. Either the gales blew, threatening destruction, or the war canoes come off. Man by howling natives with their war paint on their faces, who had come to learn the bloody virtues of the sea rover's gunpowder. South, south they had coasted, clear to the mythland of California. Here, it was said, there were Spanish adventurers who had fought their way up from Mexico. He had hopes of those Spanish adventurers. Escaping to them, the rest would have been easy. A year or two, what did it matter or less? He would win to Mexico, then a ship, and Europe would be his. But they had met no Spaniards. Only had they encountered the same impregnable wall of savagery. The Denzians of the confines of the world, painted for war, had driven them back for the shores. And at last, when one boat was cut off and every man killed, the commander had abandoned the quest and sailed back to the north. The years had passed. He had served under Temenkov and Mikhailovsky. Redout was built. He had spent two years in the Kusuklium country. Two summers in the manner of June, he had managed to be at the head of Kazubi Sound. Here at the time, the tribes had sent him for barter. Here were to be found had spotted deerskins from Siberia, Ivory from the Diamonds, war skins from the shores of the Arctic, strange stones lamps passing in trade from tribe to tribe. No one knew whence, and once a hunting knife of English make. And here, Suming Cal knew, was a school in which to learn geography. For he met Eskimos from Norton Island, from King Island and St. Lawrence Island, from Cape Prince of Wales to Point Barrow. Such places had other names and their disturbances were measured in many in days. Distances were measured in days. Oh, stupid. It was a vast region these trading savages came from. And a vaster regions from which by repeated trade the stone lamps and their steel knife had come. Subincal bullied and conjoled and bribed. Every far journeyer or strange tribesman were brought before him. Perils unaccountable and unthinkable were mentioned, as well as wild beasts, hostile tribes, impregnable fortress, forests, 
and mighty mountain ranges. But always from beyond came the rumor and tale of white-skinned men, blue of eye and fair of hell, who fought like devils and always sought for furs. They were to the east, far, far to the east. No one had seen them. It was the word that they had been passed along. It was a hard school. One could not learn geography very well through the medium of strange dialects from dark minds that mingled fact and fable and that measured distances by sleeps that varied according to the difficulty of the going. But at last came the whisper that gave Subancal courage. In the east reigned a great liver where these blue-eyed men. The river was called the Yukon, south of Michael Volsky. Read it out, emptied another great river which the Russians knew as the Quickback. The two rivers were as one, ran the whisper. Subankow returned to Michalowski. For a year he urged an expedition up the Quickback. Then aroused Malakow, the Russian half bead to read the wildest, most ferocious of the hell's broth of Mongol, Mongol adventurers who had crossed from Kamchka. Subinkal was his lieutenant. They threaded the mazes of the great delta of the quick pack, picked up the first low hills on the northern bank, and for a half a thousand miles in skin canoes loaded to the gunwales with trade goods and ammunition, fought their way against the five-knot current of a river that ran two to ten miles wide in a channel many phantoms deep. Malakal decided to build a fort at Nalutau, Subankal urged to go forward, but then he quickly reconciled himself to Nalutau. The long winter was coming on. It would be better to wait. Early the following summer, when the nice ice was gone, he would disappear up the quick pack and work his way up to the Hudson Bay Company's posts. Malakoff had never heard the whisper that the quick pack was the Yukon, and Subankal did not tell him. Came the building of the fort, it was enforced labor. The tired walls of logs rose to the sighs and the groans of the Nulato Indians. The lash was laid upon their backs, and it was the iron hand of the freebooters of the sea that laid the lash. There were Indians that ran away, and when they were caught and brought back and spread eagle before the fort, where they and their try learned the efficiency of the knout. Two died under it. The others were injured for life, and the rest took the lesson to heart and ran away no more. The snow was flying ere the fort was finished, and then it was time for furs. A heavy tribute was laid upon the tribe. Blows and lashings continued, and that tribute should be paid. The women and children were held by hostage as hostages and treated with the barbarity that only the fur thieves knew. Well, it had been a sowing of blood, and now came the harvest. The fort was gone. In the light of, the, of its burning, half of the fur thieves had been cut down. The other half passed under the torture. Only Subankal remained, or Subankal and Big Ivan, if that whimpering, moaning thing in the snow can be called Big Ivan. Subankal caught Yakaja grinning at him. There was no gainsaying Yakaja. The mark of the lash was still in his face. After all, Subankal could not blame him. But he disliked the thought of what Yakaja would do to him. 
He thought of appealing to Makamuk, the head chief, but his judgment told him that such appeal was useless. Then he too thought of bursting his bonds and dying fighting. Such an end would be quick, but he could not break his bonds. Caribou thongs were stronger than he. Still devising, another thought came to him. He signed for Makamuk, and that an interpreter who knew the coast dialogue should be brought. Oh, Makamuk, he said, I am not minded to dying. I am a great man, and it were foolishness for me to die. In truth, I shall not die. I am not like those of the carrion. He looked at the moaning thing that had once been Big Island and stirred it contemptuously with his toe. I am too wise to die. Behold, I have a great medicine. I alone know of this medicine. Since I am not going to die, I shall exchange this medicine with you. What is this medicine? Makamak demanded. It is a strange medicine. Subin Kao debated with himself for a moment as loath to part with the secret. I will tell you. A little bit in this medicine, rubbed on the skin, makes the skin as hot as a rock, hard like iron, so no cutting weapon can cut it. The strongest blow of a cutting weapon is vain thing against it. A bone knife becomes like a piece of mud, and it will turn the edge of the iron knives we have brought among you. What will you give me for the secret of this medicine? I will give you your life, Makamuk made answer to the interpreter. Subankal laughed scornly, and you shall be a slave in my house until <laughs> you die. The pole laughed more scornfully. <laughs> Untie my hands and feet and let us talk. The chief made the sign, and when he was loosened, Subankal rolled a cigarette and lighted it. This is foolish talk, said Makamuk. There is no such medicine. It cannot be. A cutting edge is stronger than any medicine. The cheese was incredulous, and yet he wavered. He had seen too many devil trees as fur things that have worked. He could not wholly doubt. I will give you your life, but you shall not be a slave. More than that. Subankal played his game coolly as he was bartering for a fox skin. It is a very great medicine. It has saved my life many times. I want a sled and dog and six of your hunters to travel with me down the river to give me safely to one day's sleep from Makalovsky Red Doubt. You must live here and teach us all your deviltries. Sumankel shrugged his shoulders and remained silent. He blew cigarette smoke out of the icy air and curiously regarded what remained of the big Cossack. The scar! Makamuk suddenly pointed to the pole's neck, where a liberated mark and then a slash of a knife and a matching ball. The medicine is not good. The cutting edge was stronger than the medicine. It was a strong man that drove the spoke, Sumankal considered. Stronger than you, stronger than your hunter, stronger than he. Again, with the toe of his moccasin, he touched the Cossack. A grisly spectacle, no longer conscience, let in whose dismembered body the plain black life clung and was loath to go. Also, the medicine was weak. 
for at that place there were no berries of a certain kind, which I see you have plenty in this country. The medicine here will be strong. I will let you go down river, said Macamook, and the sled and the dogs and the six hunters to give you safety will be yours. You were slow, said the cool rejoinder. You have committed offense against my medicine that you did not at once accept my term. Behold, I now demand more. I want one hundred beavered skin. I want one hundred pounds of dried fish. Macmoot nodded, for fish were plentiful and cheap. I want two sleds, one for me and one for my furs and fish. And my rifle must be returned to me. If you do not like the price, in a little while, the price will go. Yakagao will whisper to the chief. How will I know your medicine is true medicine? Makagook asked. Asked. It is very easy. First, I shall go in the woods. Again, Yakaga whispered to Makamuk, who made a suspicious descent. You can send twenty hunters with me. You see, I must get the berries and roots with which to make the medicine. And then, when you have brought the two sleds and loaded on them the fish and the beaver skins and the rifle, and when you have told off the six hunters who will go to me, go with me. Then, when all is ready, I will rub the medicine on my neck and lay my neck there on that log. Then you can, your strongest hunter can take the axe and strike three times on the neck. You yourself can strike the three times. Macmook strung with gaping mouth, drinking in the latest and most wonderful magic of the fur thieves. But first, the pole aided, added hastily. Between each blow, I must put on fresh medicine. The axe is heavy and sharp, and I want no mistakes. All that you will ask shall be yours. Macmuck cried in a rush of acceptance. Proceed to make your medicine. Subincal concealed his elation. He was playing a desperate game, and there must be no slips. He spoke arrogantly. You have been too slow. My medicine is offended. To make the offense clean, you must give me your daughter. He pointed to the girl, an unwholesome creature with cast in one eye and a bristling wool tube. Macmook was angry, but the pole remained unperturbable, rolling and lighting another cigarette. Make haste, he threatened. If you are not quick, I shall demand even more. In the silence that followed, the dreary Northland scene faded before him. And he saw once more his native land in France. And once more he glanced at the wolf-toothed girl. He remembered another girl, a singer and dancer, who he had come to know when he first, as a youth, he came to Paris. What do you want with a girl? To go down the river with me, Subincal glanced over her critically. She will make a good life and is an honor worthy of my medicine to be married to your blood. Again... He remembered the singer and dancer and hummed aloud the song she had taught him. He had lived the old life over, but in a detached and impersonal sort of way, looking at the memory pictures of his own life as they were pictures in the book of anybody's life. The chief's voice, abruptly breaking the silence, startled him. It shall be done. The girls shall go down the river with you. But be it understood that I myself strike the three blows with the axe upon your neck. But each time I shall put on the medicine, Subincal answered, with a show of ill-concealed anxiety. 
You shall put the medicine in between on in between each blow. Here are the hunters who will see you do not escape. Go into the forest and gather your medicine. Makamuk had been convinced of the worth of the medicine by the pole's rapacity. Surely nothing could be less than the greatest of medicines that can enable a man in the shadow of death to stand up and drive an old woman's bargain. Besides, whispered Yakaga, when the pole with his guard had disappeared amongst the tree spruce trees, when you have learned the medicine, you can easily destroy him. But how do I destroy him, Makamuk? Argue. His medicine will not let me destroy him. There will be some part where he has not rubbed the medicine, was Yakaga's reply. We will destroy him through that part, and maybe as is. Very well, we will thrust the spear in one ear and out the other. Or maybe as I. Surely the medicine will be much too strong to rub on the eyes. You are wise, Yakaga. If he possesses no other devil things, we will then destroy him. Suvinkal did not waste time in gathering the ingredients for his medicines. He selected whatsoever came to hand, such as spruce needles, the inner bark of the willow, a strip of birch bark, and a quality of moss, and a quantity of moss berries, which he made the hunters dig up for him from beneath the snow. A three dozen roots completed his supply, and he led the way back to camp. Makumuk and Yakuga crouched beside him, noting, noting the quantities and kinds of the ingredients he dropped in the pot of boiling water. You must be careful that the mossberries go in first. And, oh yes, the finger of a man. Here, Yakuga, let me cut off your finger. Just a... But Yakuga put his hands behind him and growled. Just a small finger, Subinkal pleaded. Yakuga, give him your finger. There'll be plenty of fingers lying around. Yakuga grunted and indicating the human wreckage in the snow, the score of the persons who have been tortured to death. It must be the finger of a live man, the pole objected. Then you shall have the finger of a live man. Then Yakuga strode over to the Cossack and sliced off a finger. He is not dead. Flinging the bloody trophy in the pole at the feet. Also, it is a good finger for it is large. Subinkal dropped it in the fire underneath the pot and began to sing. It was a French love song with great solemnity that he sang into the brew. Without these words I utter in it, the medicine is worthless. The words are the chiefest strength of it. Behold, it is ready. Name the words slowly, that I may know them, Makmuk commanded. Not till after the test, when the axe flies back three times from my neck, then, I, then will I give you the secret of the words. But if the medicine is not good, Makmuk cried anxiously. Subin turned upon him wrathfully. My medicine is always good. However, it is not good then do to me as you had done the others. Cut me up a bit of a time even as you had cut him up. The medicine is now cool. Thus I rub it on my neck, saying this, saying this further medicine. With great gravity he slowly intoned the line to the Marcial. 
at the same time rubbing the villainous brew thoroughly into his neck. An outcry ruined, interrupted his play acting. The giant Cossack, with the last resurgence of his tremendous vitality, had risen to his knees. Laughter of cries and surprise and applause arrived from the Nulatos, as Bing Island became flinging, began flinging himself about in the snow with mighty spasms. Subin Cow was made sick by the sight, but he mastered his qualms and made believe to be angry. This will not do. Finish him and we will make the test. Here, Yakaga, see that his noise ceases. While this was being done, Subin Cow turned to Macmook. Remember, you are to strike hard. This is not baby work. Here, take the axe and strike the log so I can see that you strike like a man. Macmook obeyed, striking twice precisely when Vigor cutting out a large chip. It is well. Subin Cal looked about him at the circle of savage faces that somehow seems to symbolize the wall of savagery that had hemmed him about ever since the Tsar's police had first arrested him in Warsaw. Take your axe, Macamook, and stand so. I shall lie down. When I rise my hand, strike, and strike with all your might, and be careful that no one stands behind you. The medicine is good, and the axe may bounce off my neck and right out of your hand. He looked at the two sleds with the dogs in the harness loaded with furs and fish. His rifle lay on top of the beaver skins. The six hunters who were to the act as his guard stood by the sled. Where is the girl? the pole demanded. Bring her up to the sled before the test goes on. When this had been carried out, Subin Cal laid down in the snow, resting his head on the log like a tired child about to sleep. He had lived so many dreary years that he was indeed tired. I laugh at you and your strength, O Macamook, he said. Strike, and strike hard. He lifted his hand. Macamook swung the axe, a broad axe for the squaring of logs. The bright steel flashed through the frosty air, poised for a perishable intimate above Macamook's head, then descended upon bare, Subincal's bare neck. Clear through fresh and bone, it cut its way, biting deeply in the dog beneath. The amazed savages saw the head bounce a yard away from the blood-spouting trunk. There was a great bewilderment and silence. When it slowly dawned in their minds, there were no medicine. The fur thief had outwitted them. Alone, of all their prisoners, he had escaped the torture. That had been the stake for which he had played. A great roar of laughter went up. Macamook bowed his head in shame. The fur thief had fooled him. He had lost face before all of his people. Still, they continued to roar out his, their laughter. Macamook turned and with bowed head stalked away. He knew from thenceforth he would not. He would no longer be known as Macamook. He would be lost face. The record of his shame would be with him till he died. Whenever the tribes gathered together in the spring for the salmon or the summer for the trading, the story would pass back and forth across the campfires of how the fur thief died peaceably at a single stroke by the hand of Lost Face. Who was Lost Face, he would hear in anticipation. 
some insolent young buck demanded. Old Lost Face would be the answer. He was once, he was who once was Macamook in the days before he cut off the fur thief's head. Lost Face by Jack London. And with this, our night has come to a close. Thank you for listening to the stories. And no, the ritual is not over yet. There is something else that is after this. So here we are, and enjoy. And happy Halloween, everybody. Tales have all been told. And as we pass until days of old. Thank you once again, my friend, for listening to our tales. Until next All Hallows' Eve, when the tales will be told again. Thank you all. We love you all, our fiends and nearly dead friends. So let us go upon this road until the big tonight. Because this is not the finale. There's one more thing to go tonight. Next up, after this, is the Halloween special of them all. Me and Tony Strauss are watching Santa Sangre. Enjoy it, one and all. Good night, and a very scary Halloween to you.